You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Watching Us This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde, and this podcast has some of our favourite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Romain Bostic, Taylor Riggs and Joe Weisenthal. What you miss is the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we got a check on the corporate conscience. Business leaders are being forced to confront the racial divide in the US, that as protests continue across the country and the world. We spoke with Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox and the first African-American woman to serve as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, about how companies should be responding to the racial divide and why she thinks the rhetoric from the Trump administration needs to be offset by real action from the private sector. We started by asking her how concerned she was about the coronavirus and its economic fallout increasing racial disparities. Well, it's clearly uh, just a top of my worry list, top of a concern list. But I entered this discussion and this, this debate during the coronavirus, at the start of the coronavirus, uh, optimistic, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. optimistic about maybe coming out of this disruption time in a better position than we entered. And that being, that meaning that people, companies in particular, paid attention to what we now call these essential workers. We start to understand what an essential worker really is, the guy who delivers food for us, the guys who stock the shelves, the guys who push the patients around, et cetera. I'm hoping that knowing that a lot of the black and brown people in the United States work at the lower end of the socioeconomic employment ladder, I'm hoping that we can use this time, total disruption, pandemic, racial unrest, continued socioeconomic imbalance to reset the whole conversation about how black and brown people are fit into the employment ladder, but also how companies view these quote-unquote essential workers and how important they are, how we have to pay them, how we have to nurture them, and how we have to move them up the ladders. We've seen... I'm hoping it's an opportunity, but I don't know if it will be. I'm, I'm glad you're optimistic. I hope that we can come out of the conversation still optimistic. How optimistic are you about some of the statements that are being made by corporations? I'm interested in particular because do you think they feel authentic across the board as it stands? I think that a lot, many companies, many more than I've ever seen before, so the vast majority that are speaking now, many more than I've seen before, are starting to feel uneasy about the state of America in this space. They are starting to realize that this is fundamentally unsustainable. 
it's definitely unfair and wrong. And that the tilt is, is starting to come off. We're starting to go out of balance. And it's really important that the rhetoric in the administration, which is generally negative and definitely demeaning, that that has to be offset by some action, real action, funding groups, uh, changing employment practices, being affirmative in how they actually address their employment needs, being affirmative in hiring um, black and brown people, being affirmative in progressing them through the companies, being affirmative about how they look at the C-suite and how they look at the board level. Without that passion and that drive, I think that we're going to not make progress. And I think the companies are now starting to realize more and more that not making progress is not sustainable. So they're going to have to do something. And the good news is it's kind of like it all came together at once. This is not enough to make change, but at least if we get enough, enough of a crescendo of voices, maybe we can keep the action going. This is not the first time that a black man has been killed by a policeman. <laughs> it's not the first time. It happened before. It happened before that, before that, before that. And I'm hoping this time we just don't let this, this sacrifice of this human go unrequited, unpaid back, right? It's important that companies start to stand up and say, we have something to do with this. We have something to do with the solutions. So, Ursula, though, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you sort of allude to the fact that we've been here before in this country with uh, the uh, killing of uh, a black person at the hands of police. Uh, what makes this seem different to you that the outcome of this is going to be different and more positive than maybe what it was in the past? Because the, I think that the number of the broad-based coalition that's now starting to speak, I'm, please don't get my, op, my um, little optimism as overjoyed optimism. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I do not believe that what I'm hearing today is going to actually drive change. We're going to have to be involved and stay involved. All of the voices in the street, all of the voices in the news media, all of the voices in corporate America are going to have to stay involved to actually see true change. The only reason why I'm a little bit more optimistic is that people are getting fed up with the state, of, the current state of play. I just don't think people can any longer uh, sit back and say, yeah, you know, we're going to go back to the way it was. The way it was was blown up in the pandemic, yeah. was blown up in the pandemic. So we have the ability yeah. to build a new way. And I'm, I'm hoping that we take this opportunity to start thinking about that. We can't fix everything coming out of this pandemic, right? We're not going to fix inequality in America, but we actually have seen it very clearly in front of our eyes now. And we've also seen the impact of disregarding that inequality, right, if these people just went away. And I'm hoping that we're smart enough to understand that we have to change this rhetoric. We have to change what we do to get a better outcome. The administration is also one of the things that is a kind of a, in some crazy ways, a hidden, a hidden um, asset. The, the rhetoric out of the out of the administration is so negative, is so kind of out of tune with a lot of Americans yeah. that is causing them to actually sit up and listen and say, whoa, whoa, that's not the way we want to actually think about our future and our world. That's not the way that we want uh, to be engaged in society. And hopefully that that hopefully what's happening is that people are starting to get unsettled with the status quo and starting to engage and start to know that they're responsible. It's not only government that can do this. It's not only businesses that can do this. All of us have to work together to absolutely try to change the dynamic in the world. The fact that more black and brown people are unemployed is not surprising at all. The fact that more black and brown people are killed by police is not surprising at all. So we don't have to be reminded by that. 
yeah. about that. What we have to do is change it. And that's what, I, so I'm hoping that business now starts to lead the way. Businesses with localities, with cities and govern, governors, cities and states can actually engage because I'm not sure we can get the play that we need to get out of the federal level, but I know that cities and states are interested in having a better life for their citizens. And so I'm hoping that we can get this kind of articulation and debate and the discourse that you need to come to a better solution. Now, I'm all the way in England and I'm engaged. Yeah. And I'm hope and I know that a lot, <laughs> other, a lot of other CEOs are engaged as well. Yeah. And if we don't lose that energy, I think we can get some positive play out of this. There is a lot of energy, Ursula. I'm wondering, do you worry at all that you don't have a government, a U.S. government at least, that isn't working in concert with some of those CEOs to make these improvements and to a certain extent, and I'll just say this very bluntly, may actually be working against it. When you go back to previous crises that we've had, even under Republican administrations, you go under Nixon, Bush, Reagan, you had a government that at least fundamentally was pushing for some of the same changes that we heard from the public, that we heard from businesses. It doesn't appear here we have that right now it terrifies me it terrifies me i i was speaking to a group of ceos um earlier today and i was speaking to a marketing um stru structure today and i almost came to tears about this this is not the way it's supposed to be and i can't tell you that i'm happy with the way it is we clearly have it's almost like a cancer that we're fighting against ourselves as somebody in our something in our body fighting against ourselves. We seem to be in this state where fundamentally the U.S. administration doesn't, is not in harmony, more than not in harmony. They are totally counter-purpose, counter-purpose to progress in this area. I'm, you know, I, I, I kind of understand uh, where the president is coming from, not understand, but, you know, he's been there forever. I'm actually very honestly a little surprised with the rest of the Republican administration and how they're letting it happen, kind of letting the fabric um, be torn apart. And this nation has been around for 270, 80, 90 years. I'm not even sure I lost count. And we are better than this. We are better than this. We can't, we cannot exist in a country where half the people, 60% of the people don't participate. Yeah. Don't participate at a good level. It just doesn't work. We're not a dictatorship. We're not a a co we're not communism. We're not, you know, a robber baron nation. We are America. Yeah. And the, and the whole point of this country is that we work together. By the way, it's a meritocracy. You got to kind of make your way up, but you can't have it blocked at birth. You can't have it blocked at birth, and that's what's happening now. Yeah. It's blocked at birth, and then we are being brutalized in the streets by the very people who are supposed to be protecting us and serving us. Not all of them but enough that makes it very difficult for me to send my daughter and son out. I send them out with a, with a normal African-American refrain. Be careful, guys. If you run into a police person, make sure that you do what they say, whatever it is. What kind of a, that's the nation we live in. We have to be aware of that. That's where companies have to actually start to speak up. They have to say that that's not the kind of policing that we want. There are a lot of people who do it well, a lot of police people who do it well, follow those guys. Governors have to speak up. Chiefs have to speak up and say that what we want is a real nation here. The nation that, you know, the, the more perfect union that we're all, we all know about, that's what we want. It's not impossible. We're getting closer and we seem to be sliding way back in yeah. just a couple of years. 
But Ursula, we also want a nation that has more than just four black CEOs running oh Fortune goodness. 500 companies. If you can't see it, you can't be it. How are you working in the boards that you're on? Because interestingly, you're on ExxonMobil, I believe, board, and they're actually notably one of the companies right. that hasn't yet put out a statement of some sort. Is that because they're worried about authenticity? How much can you help drive change on the boards that you sit? And can we see more executives in lead, positions of leadership that look like you? One of the great things about um, being who I am, meaning being a black woman, is that when somebody wants me to be on their board and they speak to me about it, they know what they get. Right? They know that they get a black woman. I'm a good board member. I know how to govern. But they know my point of view on all the boards that I'm on, all the organizations for profit and not for profit. I am a voice along with others on the board for diversity and inclusion, true big D and big I on all the boards that I'm on. We have to actually tackle this problem aggressively. <laughs> Think about this. There are four, four African-American CEOs in the Fortune 500. We can do better than this. And it has to start at the board. You're not going to diversify the company, particularly not the C-suite, if you don't diversify the board. I think that that goes hand in hand. I'm a product of a diversified board, of a diverse board. At Xerox, Ken Chenault, I was on the board of American Express. Vernon Jordan literally was instrumental in both my, my success and, current, and Ken Chenault's success. I know, we know how this works. We know it's not easy, and it's going to take what I, I'll say it again, affirmative action. Not affirmative action, the, the, old policy, governmental program, affirmative action by companies. Companies are going to have to put it in their mind that they want to do it. We're going to have to get black yeah. and brown directors on the board, and they're going to have to draw, continue to help drive the companies to be more diverse, just like we're trying to do with women, yeah. right? just like we're trying to do with gays and lesbians. With diversity in presence we know has an impact, and we have to continue to push for that Part of my job, part of my role on the boards that I'm on, all of them and the ones that I've been on, is to make sure this doesn't go silent. Yeah. And by the way, one of the great signals, if it does go silent, then you, I won't be on the board for uh, Ursula, so we have seen a lot more companies with these diversity and exclusion initiatives. A lot of companies have actually made uh, some of the data from these initiatives public. We have seen an increase in hiring, but one thing that we have seen in that data as well is that some of the companies have had trouble retaining some of these hires, whether we're talking about blacks, right. women, uh, Hispanics. The idea that they can get these people in the door, but the environment that those people walk into isn't necessarily uh, nurturing enough, I guess, to keep them there. How do you address that. And that's where the inclusion part of diversity and inclusion comes in. First of all, help from the outsiders is something that companies should look for. If they don't, if you don't know how to do it, it's going to be hard to start doing it, right? So having, there are organizations that can help companies understand not just the onboarding, you know, getting them and bringing them in the door, but how do you actually create an inclusive environment? That's why it went from diversity to diversity and inclusion because of the, the statistics that you just point out that we get them there, but they don't belong. Why don't they don't stay? Why don't they stay? Because they don't feel like they belong. The place is still, I say this a lot, companies were made by white men. So when you walk in the building, you don't, you see, you see desks, you see, you know, Johns, you see all of the stuff that you see, but you feel what you feel is a male environment. We have to change and definitely a white male environment. Inclusion is about um, rounding some of those edges 
and making it more possible for people to be who they are in the company versus having to become like everybody else in the company, which is generally white men. That's why inclusion becomes a bigger, as big a word, big D and big I. And I will say it to every company. If you're trying to do it alone, if you're trying to do it with no help, I almost assure you, you'll fail. It's kind of like trying to learn French with no French teachers. If you have no idea about inclusion and how it works, you have no idea about diversity and how it works, you should get some experts in to help you. There are companies that can help you. There are organizations that can help you. There are individuals that can help you. So pay attention here. And I think we, we for a long time, we said, yeah, we got them in. This is good. And now what we're seeing, it started with women. They're leaving after a while. Yeah. <laughs> They're leaving because they don't really belong. They just entered, but they were never made to feel at home in the company. And that's where inclusion comes in. And help is out there. When the world listens to women, it listens to white women. That's part of the mission statement behind the social media movement, hashtag share the mic now, which seeks to amplify the voice of black women via the Instagram platforms of white women in Hollywood, fashion, politics and beyond. I spoke with two of the planners behind the prominent campaign, Bozma St. John, Chief Marketing Officer of Endeavour, and Stacey Bendet, the founder of fashion label Alison Olivia. I started by asking Bozma how the idea came to fruition and what it hopes to achieve. Yes, well, so the mission of this entire campaign is to help to magnify black women's voices in white spaces where they're typically not heard. I am certainly a uh, corporate executive who has the privilege of being on many stages and in public spaces, but I still find that a lot of the messages that I deliver don't land with audiences that don't look like me, don't think like me, don't talk like me, and certainly don't believe like me. And I'm grateful to partners like Stacey Venden-Eisner, of course, who you just introduced as the CEO of Alice and Olivia, because she has been a friend for quite some time. And when she reached out and asked what she could do to help amplify my voice, uh, she, along with Glennon Doyle, who is a New York Times bestselling author, uh, asked myself and Lavi Ajayi, who's our other co-founder, um, what they could do on their platforms. And the answer was, was pretty simple, although the execution of it we knew was going to be quite a mountain. <laughs> So that's how we got to share the mic now, which is really uh, a relationship building project. We called our friends, we called those who trust, and we asked them to open up their platforms to allow for these important stories to be told. Stacey, and, the next step for you, where does this, well, this has been for one day already? Does this last for more days? It, I hope it does last. I mean, I think what we really hope comes out of this is that people take this concept, they take our platform of Share the Mic Now, and they continue to share. They keep sharing. They do this in their communities, with their friends, with people who they don't know. And we continue to magnify Black women's voices. And in truth, when this started, Bose posted something that made me laugh, but also made me think and, and really look at what I was doing as an executive and, and a business owner. And she said, if one more white woman asked me what they can do to help, I roll. And I said, you are right. And thank you for posting that so publicly because we can all do more and we need to do more both personally in our lives and as executives and companies. We need to be 
completely focused on creating diversity at all levels. And we need to magnify the voices of Black women. And that's what this project is about. And that's what we want to continue. Rose, you made such a good point earlier that you said you f you're focusing on you, well, we first of all, went to your friends, people you trust, but how do we get it even broader than that? How do you cross not just industry lines, you yourself in media, and of course, Stacey in fashion, but how do you cross political lines? How do we cross geographical lines here? Well, it's interesting because part of what Stacey just mentioned about my eye roll when people asked me what to do came from a, a real place. You know, it came from a place of being frustrated that People want to look out around the world and think about, well, how do I change everything? You know, how do I make big seismic changes when sometimes the changes are much closer to home? You know, they're within your friendship group. They're within your families. And so to me, this project is born out of relationships because that's where we want people to start. We hope that people will be inspired by the fact that these women are connected in one way or another. We have what I call less than one degree of separation on this project. There are people who know several people who are involved and who are speaking or who are lending their platforms. And so my hope and desire is that we keep sharing the mic, that people look to their own groups, they look to people who may not have had the mic before and say, listen, come over here, help me to let my audience or my followers or my family hear what it is that you have to say. We have to sometimes just listen. And that's the point today. Stacey, I'm sure you've been doing a lot of listening. You've been, I'm sure, on behalf of Alice and Olivia, trying to really focus on sounding authentic as well. How do you do that? How do you ensure that your business represents your client base and the broad brush of what America looks like right now? Well, I think that as a brand, we've always been about women, like, and women globally. And we've always been a very diverse brand and a brand that isn't about one type of clothing for one type of woman. I've always said throughout my career, I want to dress all women. I want every woman, woman who puts on my clothes to feel the best version of herself. So I feel like our ethos as a brand is really about supporting women globally. But I think right now in the United States, it's a moment of reflection in terms of not just supporting women, but changing the way we are as a society, as, a, as companies, in the boardrooms, in schools, everywhere, because we are not doing enough to make true change. And making change requires conversations. It requires giving, and I say women because I'm always about women, but giving the Black women platforms, giving them, making sure that there are more Black women, women in boardrooms, more Black women in, you know, positions of power in politics and everywhere, because that's how you're going to change the way Black people are being treated in society. That's the way you're going to change all of the things that, you know, these riots are about right now. And I realized that as an executive, there are multiple ways that I can do that. And, you know, and it, and it goes beyond thinking about who we are in a brand, as a brand and actually executing who we want to be as a brand. Rose, it, we've spoken with Ursula Burns, who, of course, is on the board of Uber, a company you work with. She is, I mean, horrendously one, the only black female to have led a Fortune 500 business for any length of time. And there are still currently only four CEOs on the Fortune 500 list as it stands who are of color. 
your view on how companies can be authentic in this right now. We've had, you're at Endeavor, you're focusing on how one can market themselves. We've seen Nike come out with very powerful adverts, but none of their board are black. How do you ensure that these companies can talk the talk and walk the walk? Yes, well, thanks for asking that question because talking the talk is one thing, walking it is a whole nother matter. Um, I've been very vocal about the issue of diversity and inclusion for a long time because, well, first of all, I'm black. I don't like to be the only one <laughs> or a few in a room. I really don't. It is not comfortable. I don't recommend it for anyone. And so for me, it is a very personal pursuit. Part of the challenge is that, again, there are times in our society and our culture, like now, when companies do feel the pressure of the community to say something. Now, I don't fault them for saying something. It is better than saying nothing at all. But again, my point is that if your own house is not clean, how are you going to go and clean up the world? It is imperative for companies to look at themselves and distinguish what they are going to do from an inclusion standpoint. Because again, you can hire all you want to, but if the support system and the culture of the company does not allow for the fruitful uh, contribution of the people of color who are then hired, then they will not stay and they cannot contribute. And so it is imperative that companies today take a close look at what they are doing and change that. I'd much prefer that than the millions of dollars of donations everywhere else that they're looking to. If they can invest in the moment that they are in, if they can invest in the company and in the employees that they have, if they can recruit and do a better job of holding on to employees of color, then that will make a difference, truly. And, and Bose, don't you think, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm looking at and that I feel really strongly about is that this happens at all levels. You know, we need companies to invest at the level of internships and mentoring programs all the way up to the boardroom, right? Because you, we need to be cultivating this change, you know, at, at all levels. And, you know, and that's something that I hope becomes a conversation out of Share the Mic, too, is, is how we encourage that and how we inspire that. And hopefully I mean, the- this is exactly what your social media campaign might do, is the, the relationships you now foster between Hillary Clinton, the person she's handing the mic over to, or indeed Carolyn Everson of Facebook, the person she handed the mic over to, might ensure that we see fostering of mentorship. Is it all about mentorship and, and ensuring these sorts of relationships, one-on-one relationships are founded, Bosma? I would say that it's more than mentorship, you know, because again, we've been very careful about how we phrase the relationship. You know, this is not about, it was a great insight from the women who founded uh, Amplified Melanated Voices, because we don't want to assume that white women have the mic and have the position of power. That's not the intention of this program. We're looking for equality, not necessarily a takeover. And so there are moments when we are in this conversation, certainly to share information. I think it's time for black women to be able to be heard in certain spaces. And if there is a relationship built of equality, then that is what we're looking for. Not necessarily of one just being the prophet to tell everyone how to be, but hopefully there is something learned that can help to make the society even better, even just one relationship at a time. And we can be clear on this, that we are looking at amplifying, magnifying, and celebrating Black women's voices today. And, and for me, learning, for, like, as I've been 
watching everything today and going on everyone's feeds. Um, it's been inspiring and elevating and I've just had gotten such, you know, a sort of, I felt like I've learned so much today and met so many women who are so amazing and who I want to hear more from. Um, and I think that's also, I mean, Bose, would you agree? That's, that's a big part of what this is about. Of course. I think sharing, sharing the mic is literal. <laughs> Share it. it. Is. Pass it around. Let people hear what everyone has to say. And I really do hope that that continues. And it doesn't take an organization. It doesn't take a campaign. And it certainly doesn't take just one hashtag in order to make it happen. So we really hope that people continue to be more mindful about listening to others and diversifying their own feeds as they move forward in what they even consume on social media and beyond. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Dan Fuss, the renowned bond fund manager and vice chairman of Loomis Sales, who has more than $270 billion of assets under management, well, he came on ahead of the Fed decision to talk about why he now doubts we will get a negative yield in the US, but does think that low rates are here to stay. Hi, to be clear, I was afraid of negative yield. Mm. <laughs> I, I was in a panic about it. Um, um, I, I don't. I... Uh, the Fed's been pretty clear they don't want negative yields. We'll find out tomorrow. Um, they are heavily influenced by yields elsewhere in the world. And uh, these yields have been negative for some time uh, in Europe and the base rate, which is essentially German government. Um, and the Fed is afraid of that because their very first mission is to keep the banking system running. And if you get into a negative yield situation, it's uh, very, very hard on all the banks, but particularly the small and, me and smaller, medium-sized banks. So they're very concerned about that. Then they also want to fight inflation and promote employment. Um, but that, that's a big, big, big concern for them. So I doubt very much yeah. if we're going to head towards negative or if we're going to arrive at negative yields. So even if we don't arrive there, Dan, I mean, there is a general sentiment in markets that we are going to remain uh, near this uh, near zero or at least, you know, below one percent on the benchmark 10 year for uh, a short period of time, if not necessarily a longer period. If you are in the market, in the equity markets right now and you've seen the gains that we've had going back to March, and you're looking for a way to hedge going forward, can you still hedge in the Treasury market? Uh, $64 question. I've done a little of that uh, at the long end. It, it scares me. It's not a good way to get a, a good night's sleep. Uh, but uh, I, I think you can, and I think you'll be able to for a while. And uh, the market is liquid. Depending on your size, mm. um, you, you're probably okay. Uh, and I wouldn't 
overly worry about it. Uh, but that's really all I can say on that. I do think that these lower rates than history are going to be with us for some time. I was a little surprised, quite frankly, by the backup in the long end that mm -hmm. we had as the curve steepened here in the last handful of days. Uh, but uh, let's face it, the market is big, liquid, and so forth, so the Fed doesn't have to worry about that aspect of things. They do keep an eye on what the other major central banks are doing. And uh, as I said, Europe's negative, Japan's next to it. Uh, so there is an attraction towards the U.S. Uh, pay instruments and towards treasuries. Um, I sort of count on that to support the short and intermediate range. The long end, you can't be quite so sure. Dan, I'm interested by also your take about previously you were saying you were getting worried about the potential of negative rates in the U.S. when it comes to sovereign bonds. What about the world of corporate bonds right now? It's fascinating that we've seen such ferocious supply coming to the market at the moment. It feels as though every syndicate manager out there is going and telling companies, come now or don't come at all. Do you think now is the time to be buying, buying corporate bonds at all? Will that demand dry up at some point? Well, let me put the, the answer in two parts. Number one, uh, when asked, which I have been, uh, what I would do if I were raising money for a fairly profitable corporation, I said I'd come to market right now and I'd borrow as long as I could. And uh, I would try to get away with 10-year non-refundable uh, or, or, or better than that because there is a heavy demand. Uh, and that that money's cheap, depending on, on your credit rating, of course, and the size of the company. But for a sizable uh, double B, double B plus type credit, uh, the, the money's very, very cheap from a longer term view. And I'd go, go, go get it if your long term plans justify that. Uh, so that's my answer there. It's, it's cheap and I'd, I'd do it. Now, how long this goes on, I, I just really don't know. Hmm. I, I don't know. I would guess over a year, year and a half maybe. But uh, it, markets have a nasty way of surprising you, or at least surprising me. And hmm. as you look forward, you have to keep in mind that other people are looking even further forward. And there's a ton of money looking to invest. Now, we had a period right at the end of March, early April, where you were better off buying the common stock of some of the stronger credits, uh, Pfizer, Merck, right. things like that, um, than you were the bonds. And, and I actually went so far as to suggest changing guidelines on some of our bond accounts yeah. to the clients. Um, and, uh, and, and we you know, were able to do some of that. That was a unique time in recent year history. Yeah. Uh, so, so that we'll we'll see. So, so we'll Dan, see how it goes. Yeah, Dan. So Dan, I mean, you, you talk about looking forward here. I mean, obviously, you have the benefit 
uh, of being able to look back on the decades in which you've been in this business. Uh, you've worked through several bull markets, several bear. I actually went back to try to count, actually. I looked at when you started, and I tried to go back and count the number of bull markets and bear markets that you've worked through, and I lost track, Dan. But I'm wondering that when you look back at all of those various market cycles we've been through, is there something that you can draw on from any one of those past cycles that maybe gives us a little bit more insight, a better insight into how this current one may uh, end or begin? Well, thanks for putting my age so gently there. Uh, the, uh, I have seen a lot of cycles. Uh, I've seen a lot of markets, and not all bad markets are necessarily coincident with, with cycles. The absolute worst market by far, bar none, was 1974. Mm. Uh, it was a period that ran just approximately nine months and a few days, and it was god-awful. Uh, people remember it for stocks, but if you were in corporate bonds at that time, oh. uh, it, it was just awful. Each market is somewhat different. The one constant that you have to look out for in the market that is not a worry this time is that money withdraws from the market because mm -hmm. it's tight, uh, you know, because the Fed is leaning against it. 81 would be the best example. Or out of fear. Uh, now, in this market, you've got something else going on, though. As you look forward, and this, I think, is if you can solve this, uh, you can forget about the market overall. The question is, how about the issuers of the debt? Will the Treasury pay its debt? Yeah. What about the agencies? Yes. Um, yeah. What about corporates? Mm. And what about major munis, states? Um, I'm working on the assumption that we will probably not have a major default, a default of any kind, by one of the 50 states. Hmm. Uh, that could be wrong. Now, if that happens, then uh, then you've got a different situation. Yeah. Uh, but I do anticipate a very difficult time on the corporate credit side for many issuers. And as this starts to play out on their earnings, uh, you're going to have right. a widening yeah. of, of spreads. Yeah. And uh, that, that's yeah. and a, a change in tax policy will do the same thing. Then we spoke with Paul Hennessy the CEO of Room, an online auto sales platform the day his company went public. Shares rose at one point more than double in its trading debut after racing past its earlier goals for its IPO to raise $468 million. We spoke with Paul about whether the pandemic will permanently alter consumer behaviour and started by asking if they left too much money on the table. Good afternoon. And look, I, I can't comment on pricing. What, what we're obviously you know, thrilled about and uh, and humbled, quite frankly, is the the enthusiasm that we had from investors throughout our testing the waters process, throughout uh, throughout the the roadshow itself, and now as we've gone into the public markets, I say humbling because it, it makes us want to work even harder to actually deliver for our customers and deliver value for our uh, enthusiastic shareholders. So 
yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're humbled and, and, and happy with the outcome. So, Paul, I mean, what's the general business model here? Because when I look at Vroom, I look at other sites like, you know, CarMax, Carvana and a few others, uh, they all, all seem to offer, at least at its core, the same service. But around the edges, there are some differences here. And I'm wondering if you can explain what the differences are with Vroom. Yeah, I'd be thrilled to. You know, Vroom is a an innovative e-commerce platform. So that means we built a, a best-in-class uh, e-commerce platform right next to a best-in-class vehicle operations platform. And then we built the entire business stitched together on a data science and experimentation platform. So what that means for customers, right? Broad selection of cars uh, at transparent uh, prices mm-hmm. delivered to their uh, to their driveways and now and more important than ever in a contact-free way. And for sellers, right? Because we're operating on both sides of this marketplace, uh, for sellers that are looking to sell us their car or, or, car or trade in their car, uh, the beauty of that model is they can load in their license plate or VIN, get a real-time offer, say yes, and we'll dispatch a, a truck to pick up their car and a, uh, and funding for the car. So we, we've really taken the friction out of the experience, and that's why customers are really leaning in. We were, we were growing at you know, approaching 150% on e-commerce units and nearly 160% in e-commerce revenue in the first quarter. And now even since COVID, we think that there's a tailwind as more and more customers are leaning into our model. So Let, let's talk about that change and what the coronavirus for the great clouds that it presents many, it must offer a silver lining or two for the e-commerce business that you've built. Talk to us about how rampant you see demand and how you do hope to sustain it once markets reopen and people can get back into a car showroom. Sure. We, we believe it's a structural change. You know, the, the massive market that we're, that we're playing in here, call it $841 billion in revenue, 40 million units annually, and yet it only has less than 1% e-commerce penetration. And so what's happened now is consumers don't want to go back out into the public, uh, back into the traditional dealership models. From the comforts of their own home, they can reach into their pocket, pull out their phone, have a car, do everything you could possibly do in a dealership, financing, vehicle warranty extension, uh, and then have the car delivered. Yeah. And so yeah. what we've seen uh, since, since uh, the, the, yeah, the global pandemic is that customers now are significantly more likely to buy a car online. In fact, data suggests that it's doubled. So the market's coming our way, and we've got a, got a really nice tailwind in our business. So the consumer preference for potentially uh, avoiding the dealer or at least doing in-person transactions, that certainly makes sense. What is sort of the trend line that you're seeing with regards to just overall demand? Prior to COVID-19, we had seen a lot of data that seemed to suggest uh, that car sales growth had sort of plateaued and that people were looking to car sharing and public transit and other forms of uh, transportation other than owning their own vehicle. Yeah, there, there were moments in early March where we saw a, a demand decline, I think, as everyone was starting to figure out what are the implications of the pandemic. But then, you know, as people were doing more uh, stay at home kind of under under orders, uh, we saw demand pick back up into our business because we're an e-commerce business, because we're incredibly agile. We were able to move through inventory, sell that inventory at a profit, then come out on the other side of this market and then be buyers in a in a decreased uh, price uh, market. That's good news for Broom and that's good, no- good news for Broom customers. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, high interest in the model. And again, we think that's structural. Paul, this is a day of celebration when you come to the market, but a public market is a tough one. And this is a period of time where we really look 
for leadership, particularly from owner, the CEOs of businesses such as yourself. How are you trying to demonstrate that your board, which has two women, but mainly white men, is currently reflecting that of America and your customer base and that of your stakeholders? Yeah, you mentioned the, the board. As you know, we've been sprinting towards the public markets and as part of uh, changing out from an, uh, an investor board to now what will be the Broom's long-term board, uh, the first move that we made was to, to increase diversity. We put some women on that uh, on to, to help us through the, the leadership into the future. And now we're in that process and we're, we're continue, yeah. uh, continue to search for the appropriate levels of diversity yeah. so that we've got a comprehensive and strong board. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.